there was an opportunity in cannabis for women to not get stuck at that glass ceiling. Welcome to the Greener Grass Podcast from Bluebird Botanicals. I'm your host, Lex Pelger. Today is a great interview with a badass filmmaker. She's also a perfect fit for our Women in Weed series. Her name is Wendy Borman, and she's the filmmaker behind Mary Jane's The Women of Weed. She took a pause from her whirlwind tour of the festival circuit to stop by the Bluebird office to talk about the making of the movie, how she got interested in cannabis, and the fascinating films that she worked on prior to this. I hope you enjoy this interview as much as I did, and if you get a chance to see the film, go out and grab it. This show is brought to you by Bluebird Botanicals, to spread education about cannabis and other things on the greener side of life. Bluebird CBD oil comes from farms in southern Colorado and is grown using only water, soil, and sunlight. Go to bluebirdbotanicals.com for more info. I'm here with Wendy Borman, the maker of Mary Jane's Women of Weed. Thanks for joining me. Hey, thanks for having me. It's great to be here. So before we get into the movie, can you tell me what led you into filmmaking and the first two features that you did before? Yeah. Um, so I originally uh, wanted to be an actor. And thankfully, my parents said, we're not sending you to college to be a waitress, so you need to have a backup plan. So it's like, fine, I'll add a journalism major to my theater major. Um, and the great thing about that was I kind of made my own film school that way because um, I had the acting, directing, working with actors experience from the theater department, and then I had the technical experience in the journalism school through their broadcast electronic journalism segment. Um, and I had my click moment when I was in Ghana, West Africa in 2002. I was doing this environmental journalism study abroad there. And my internship was to be on this film set for a TV show. Um, it was called The Things We Do for Love. <laughs> it was um, kind of like the OC or like 90210. It was like their teeny bopper focused, you know, show, right? But it was sponsored by this, the Ghanaian social marketing firm. So everybody, every episode had this message about HIV prevention and awareness and things like that. So it was really interesting. Well, as an intern, you're getting water, you're, you know, stopping traffic, you're making sure people get where they need to go. Well, one day the director wasn't feeling well and he handed me the script and said, you call it today. So at 22, I'm in Africa directing a TV show and I was like, yeah, this is what I want to do. <laughs> forget the acting, forget, you know, forget the theater stuff. I want, I want to direct. Um, so in a roundabout way, um, you know, I did Teach for America. I in this, taught in the South Bronx. I worked in San Francisco and New York and L.A. Um, and in 2007, I had an opportunity to go to Thailand for two months. And it was one of those experiences when I heard about the opportunity. I was like, I think I need to take a camera with me. Because it was a group of actors who were going to Thailand to do a fundraising performance for this elephant hospital. And I didn't know much about Thailand, I didn't know much about Asian elephants or anything. Um, but by following them around, um, we went into the elephant hospital one day and there was a three-legged baby elephant hobbling around because she'd stepped on a landmine. 
And I just can't live in a world where that happens. So, like, I could never write a check big enough. I could never, you know, speak in front of the United Nations or, you know, do anything like that. But I knew I could make a film about it. So I spoke to the founder of the hospital, and she said, I'm going to help her walk in again. And I said, if you do it, I'll come back. So over the course of four years, I went to Thailand four times just filming that progress. Um, and eventually they were able to build a prosthetic and the elephant walked and we had happy tears and that film became The Eyes of Thailand. Um, and it was actually honored by the United Nations twice. So that was that film. Um, but the average length of a documentary is like five to seven years. So you constantly have a bunch of projects going as a documentary filmmaker. So in the middle of all of that, I'd also had the opportunity to produce a documentary about dyslexia. Well, I had taught middle school in the South Bronx with Teach for America years before. And I knew I had kids who were undiagnosed for learning disabilities, probably somewhere dyslexic. You know, when you have... 15-year-old sixth graders reading at a first grade level and the school district saying, well, they can't fail sixth grade again. You have to pass them on to middle school. And yet they're just thinking I'm stupid as opposed to there's some, my brain just learns differently. There's a disconnect there, right? So that was a really great um, kind of full circle moment where I could come back and in a different way try to address that. But this time as a, producing a documentary, and that became the big picture, Rethinking Dyslexia. And that was at Sundance in 2012, and HBO ended up picking it up. Wow. It's quite a spread of topics. Yeah. <laughs> None of them cannabis-related yet. <laughs> and so how did cannabis come about to be your next big project? Well, I moved to Colorado in 2014, um, and I had actually never tried cannabis before. I was not a user. Um, I'd really absorbed the dare messaging, you know, of marijuana being a gateway drug. We weren't even calling it cannabis at that time. Um, and there was a, there's drug addiction in my family. You know, there's alcoholism, there's needle drugs. Um, and so I just stayed away from it. And yet, when I moved to Colorado in 2014... I couldn't ignore hearing all these amazing stories of women having success in the industry. And that was intriguing to me, but I didn't quite have an access point, right? Well, I finally heard that statistic in 2015 that 36% of senior leadership in the cannabis industry was women. And when you compare that to the national average, which is 22%, there is a, a significant amount of more female leadership coming to cannabis. And that intrigued me enough that I wanted to learn more. So I started the process by interviewing over 100 people over the phone to just try to wrap my head around it, you know, like not knowing anything. Um, and I realized that not only was cannabis connected with gender parity, it's also connected to social justice and environmental sustainability. And those three core values have been present in all my other projects. So once I figured that out, I knew that even if I wasn't a cannabis user, I had an access point in a way to help highlight the stories of the women who are leading a responsible cannabis industry. And did you start to find why there was more parity for women in this industry? I found that there were mainly two big reasons why women were coming to cannabis. Um, the first opportunity is comes down to just corporate culture. You know, there was an opportunity in cannabis for women to 
not get stuck at that glass ceiling where you're the SVP of something and you've got a bunch of white guys getting promoted over you. Um, you can be the CEO. You can be the founder. You can hire the colleagues that you want to work with. And within and by doing that, we see that when women and people of color start more companies, they have more diverse boards and they have more diverse colleagues. And I think that's because we intuitively know that when you have diverse perspectives, your company ends up being more successful because you're not going to get stuck in one way of thinking, right? And we see this across film sets, Fortune 500 companies, and the cannabis industry. When you have diversity, the company ends up being more successful and more profitable. The second opportunity that cannabis provides for women is they get to create products that are going to fit into their lifestyle. You know, women aren't really interested in having the tallest bong ever built or having something with the most THC that's going to have them couch locked for three days, right? You know, they need something that fits into their lifestyle. And women, we have a lot of shit to do, you know, whether it's work or at home, families, communities, you know, we take on a lot. So if we're looking at cannabis, it needs to be an easy way that already fits into our lifestyle. And so women get to create the products that do that because we know it's going to work. And so what obstacles did you face as you were getting this movie pulled together? Well, you can always do a film about the making of the movie <laughs> for every movie. Um, there, there's always a behind-the-scenes story. Um, I think the biggest challenge that I found as a filmmaker was just trying to tell this story about women as a female storyteller. You know, we did find um, funders and supporters who came along for the ride with us, um, and they were supportive from the beginning. But to be honest, I did have some pushback from people of like, why women? And my response is, why not? I mean, we're 51% of the population, we're 33% of speaking roles in films. That's a problem, you know? And 36% of senior leadership sounds great. It's not 50 yet, though. So why wouldn't we tell this story, right? But it was this was before the Me Too and the Time's Up movements, right? We started filming in 2016. So we been having these conversations, but it wasn't really sinking in on the level that it is now in 2018. So, you know, just fighting for why this story needed to be told in the way it needed to be told um, was something. Funding is always an issue, but it is for every startup. You know, every film is basically a startup company. So you're pitching to investors, you're going out, um, you're writing the business plans, you're doing everything you can just to keep the lights on and keep going, right? Um, and yet, you've got one product. You know, it's not like I can go in the kitchen and make something and sell cupcakes on the side of the road to keep it going, right? You know, you've got one film, and it takes a long time to do. So um, the fact that it is a longer return on investment for people, you know, if they're not used to that kind of investment, that was um, an educational moment. And then... Related to that, you know, there are people who may be interested in cannabis, but they don't understand film investing. Or there's people who understand film investing, but they're like, ooh, if I invest in a film about cannabis, is that legal? 
And we had to have those conversations with each of the investors, right? Because no matter what access point they were coming from, we had to fill them in on the other side of it. So I'm happy to say that, you know, we've completed the film. We're getting great responses from screenings and festivals. And, you know, every time we do a screening, um, everybody goes, what's next? What's next? I want more. And so that means as a filmmaker, I know we're onto something. And when did you realize that you would need to be in front of the camera to really pull this movie together? So as a documentary film, you go in with some idea of a story, right? So you just can figure out, like, what am I going to film? What am I not going to film? So um, we originally thought we had a pretty simple story. Women are leading this new industry. This was in 2016, right? So we were thinking we're going to have the first female president. The sky's the limit for women. This is a girl power film. Um, And when that didn't happen, we really had to go back to the drawing board and figure out, you know, what is this film about? And at that point, we brought it back to these three core values. And we we used that as a structure to try to talk about these different segments of the industry and all the various women who are leading it. And so that's a really big thing for the audience to try to take on, right? So at that point, I realized I needed to be the on-camera narrator to help connect the dots for the, the audience at home. And by doing that, that also opened the door for me to be vulnerable about my upbringing. You know, so I actually kind of become a character in the film, if you will, because you see me asking these questions on the journey um, and you see the light bulb moments come on for me. And by playing that skeptic role, which was natural, right? When I started the film, I didn't know anything about cannabis. So um, I had all these questions. Um, But I think that helps the audience because there's a lot of people who understand cannabis, right? but you're just preaching to the choir at that point. But by having an outsider say, well, hey, what about this? Okay, I've learned something. Now what about this? Well, now I have more questions. What about all of these things? Um, That builds trust with the audience who, because there are a lot of people who still have the same types of questions, right? So they get to go on that journey with me. And then for the other part of the audience, everybody who's already drank the Kool-Aid, right? They're just waiting for the light bulb moment. And there's some great, like, applause lines in the films when they go, oh, she's got it. Okay, we can all move forward. She's past that. So um, it's always fun to stand in the back of the theater when the audience is watching the film because you see them, you know, emote and connect. And um, it's different in every screening. You know, we've had screenings on the West Coast, the East Coast, and Colorado. Um... But there's some key lines that stand out each time for people that we know we're winning them over at that point. And were there any cities that you screened in that surprised you? I think the screening that was the most eye-opening for me was a recent screening we did in Oklahoma City. You know, we had our film festival premiere in Mill Valley, so that's Northern California. So they've got a long history with cannabis. We also did a screening in Woodstock, New York, also a long history with cannabis there. Um But Oklahoma City, I mean, they have an opportunity, Oklahoma as a state has an opportunity to vote um, whether to legalize medical marijuana or not in June. And so they hosted this screening to help have that conversation with the community. And that's really ground zero now. I mean, we forget 
in these other pockets of the world um, where cannabis is legal, that it's life and death for some people. You know, there were people coming up to me in tears saying, my family won't talk to me anymore because I use cannabis instead of opioids. I can't see my grandchildren because I do cannabis instead of all these other pharmaceuticals. You know, my doctor won't let me go to the doctor's office anymore because I wanted to talk about cannabis. And we forget that, right, in these bubbles like Colorado where it's legal. Um, there were people who were arrested just driving into the state of Oklahoma because they had Colorado plates. Whether or not they had something in their car or not, I mean, they were targeted um, by the police. So that stuff is still happening. And so until cannabis is legalized federally, it's still going to happen. Um, and that was a really powerful reminder for me that we still have a lot of work to do. How did you come up with the term puffragette for the people doing this work? Well, as we were putting together the film in the edit, we realized we needed to figure out a word to kind of, you know, encapsulate the type of work that, that these women are doing. And there's a lot of cute things out there. I mean, you look at Instagram hashtags and you can see ganja girls and green goddesses and, you know, sativa sisters and w even the title of the film, you know, Mary Jane's Women of Weed, things like that. But it just didn't feel like that was doing their work justice. If we're talking about big things like gender parity, social justice, sustainability. Um, so we, I was having a marketing meeting with my team and we just kind of spitballing like, what could this be? And Pufferjet came out of it and we were like, it's perfect. <laughs> so we define a Pufferjet as a woman or a man who is working for gender parity social justice, and environmental sustainability in the cannabis industry. And it's basically a combination of pot plus suffragette. And so you became one during the course of this film. I did. I mean, that's the interesting thing. I started as a cannabis outsider, and by the end of it, I definitely feel like I've become a cannabis advocate. You know, I'm not an expert. I'm not the person who's doing the day-to-day -day science, um, who's living and breathing it. But... I can help elevate the stories of the women who are doing that, and they're my teachers. You know, I'm grateful that I'm surrounded by these cannabis fairy godmothers, as I call them, so they can enlighten me and educate me. Um, and, you know, they help take me on this cannabis journey that I go through on the film. And so what was it like to produce the film in this kind of political climate? Honestly, it wasn't any more difficult than any other film that I've done. You know, like the political climate didn't make it any more challenging. Funding is a challenge. You know, fighting for just the right to tell your story is a challenge. Um, I think if anything, um, the call to action for the film has become a lot stronger. You know, because we didn't see this girl power story come out of it in 2016. And, you know, we're in, we have the most anti-cannabis administration we've had in a very long time in this country. Um, plus, by the time the film came out in 2017, the statistic for f female leadership in cannabis had dipped from 36% down to 27 So there's some reason why, you know, women are losing this stakehold. And what I think happened is in 2016, we had a whole new round of funding come in because we had eight more states legalize some type of cannabis. And 
we have this idea of, well, you take a couple white guys in hoodies with a garage and a computer and they make the next big startup company, right? And we've got this old world paradigm of funders who are trying to impose that on the cannabis industry. Well, it's not really working because cannabis started as a movement, not an industry. So there's part of the growing pains here are figuring out who's going to get access to the funding. And what we're seeing right now is it's really following um, similar to other startup funding models. You know, women get less than 3% of startup funding. People of color, less than 1%. So there's close to, you know, 97% of funding that's going to people who look look a certain way, regardless of what their business model is. Um, and cannabis has an opportunity to change that, right? And in some states, they're making it part of the laws. I mean, we have equity programs. We have incubator programs to help make sure that the women, the people of color, the LGBTQ communities, the people who have been targeted by the the drug war are given access to basic things like here's how to write a business plan. Here's how to fill out the license and application process. You know, um, here's how to pitch to investors. Here's what a pitch deck looks like. You know, like there's these skills gaps that we can fix if we want to. Um, and I think we should want to. So funding is part of it. Um, and the other challenge that we need to address is mentorship. You know, we can't be happy with just having one diverse face in a boardroom. We need to make sure that those individuals can then turn around and help mentor the next crop. You know, we're not going to have parity until we actually have parity in the boardroom. And that's um, in gender, and that's race, that's sexual orientation, it's disability and ability levels across the board. We need as many points of view as possible on this industry to really make it as big and as powerful that everybody's predicting that it can be. And on that front, one of the really impressive parts about the movie is how many different spheres of influence you cover. To have uh, social justice warriors like Betty Aldworth or Amanda Ryman, but then also healers like Mara Gordon or Madeline Martinez, all of who I think are amazing. <laughs> They're all amazing, yes. And so what fields do you think are most ripe right now for women to be moving into and to be making a difference? I think all of it's ripe for women. You know, women are smart. We see the same opportunities that everybody else does. And the great thing about cannabis is no matter what skill set you have outside of the cannabis industry, there's a way to apply that in the cannabis industry. So you don't have to be stuck as the marketing person, unless you want to be the marketing person, right? Um, the way we broke down the film um, is we looked at five different segments of the cannabis industry. So we looked at cultivation, medicine, legalization, business, and then science and technology. And some of that can, you know, get blurred, you know, because, yeah, people in medicine also start business. <laughs> you know, science and technology is also part of this. Um, but structurally, you know, having those five segments created kind of these chapters in the film. Um, and that let us hear from experts in those particular um, segments of the industry. And that's how we got the diversity. Um, that was a big goal for my for me as a filmmaker just 
if we're going to look at this industry and saying women are building it, what type of women are building it? And that's a huge social responsibility, right? So um, it became very important to ha have a broad cross-section of women. So different ages, ethnicities, um, expertise, geographical distribution. You know, um, I'm proud to say we interviewed 40 women um, and included them in the film. And the diversity... Um, of the perspectives was really important for us as storytellers, but it's also really important for the audience. You know, Gina Davis says, if you can see it, you can be it. So if we want to encourage more people to come into the cannabis industry, we need to show them that, wow, this person who looks like you or has a similar background to you, they're able to be successful here. You can be successful here. Were there some other lessons that you really wanted to hope that you were really hoping people would be able to walk away from the film with? It's less of a lesson and more of um, a comfort level. You know, I had never tried cannabis before I started the movie. And as we were putting the film together, um, we showed a rough cut to an audience and they said, I think there's a scene missing. <laughs> if Wendy's going to be this skeptic at the beginning of the film and go on this journey, like, does she try it at the end? Um, so I did. I, I felt like that was an, an important thing to do. You know, it wasn't about sensationalism. It wasn't like, let's get windy stoned. It was, let's use this as an educational opportunity to really flip the script and look at normalization, right? So I decided what product I wanted to use. I went to a dispensary. I showed people what I was buying. I had a conversation with a female bud tender so she could coach me through what type of product and how I might want to try to combine things to make sure I had a positive experience. And then I also put together a group of cannabis fairy godmothers. You know, these are the women who are the old guard, right? They're the old pros. They know how to do this. And they guided me through this. Um, and it was wonderful because I had heard from some other women that maybe their first cannabis experience wasn't that positive. Maybe somebody passed them something at a party or a guy gave it to them and there was a bunch of peer pressure. And I was able to flip that script and, and make it um, a very empowering female-centric thing. So that felt important. And by doing that, it also gave, gives the audience permission to have those conversations that maybe they have some questions about. Maybe there's a family member they want to talk to about how they can decrease some of the pharmaceuticals that they're on by switching to cannabis. Maybe they just need some terminology to figure out how to talk to a doctor about incorporating this. Or simply, it could just give them the courage to walk into a dispensary in their state and say, hey... I want to learn more about this. What do you got? Right? So I'm hopeful that just by modeling that, um, that is an opportunity for audience members to take away and say, hmm, I think I, I, think I want to learn more. Let's start that conversation. One small puff for <laughs> woman, one great puff for humankind. I love it. <laughs> um, how did you get Melissa Etheridge? <laughs> I'm impressed. Oh, thank you. No, we're thrilled to have Melissa Etheridge in the film. Um, so she's a busy lady, <laughs> as you would expect, right? Um, so it was actually a 10-month journey uh, being in touch with her publicists and managers and just figuring out where would we be, where would she be. Um, 
And it was a wonderful last minute surprise. So we actually joined her in St. Louis because she was doing a concert there. So I hopped on a plane with a cinematographer and two cameras and we flew out there to interview her and um, we were able to do a sit down interview with her in a hotel room. <laughs> um, and if you saw the behind the scenes photos, it was pretty impressive. We had to like tip the bed up and like move all this stuff to make it look like a real room, not like a hotel room. Um, and then we uh, were able to film her during her sound check. So we got some behind the scenes music stuff from her too. So um, it's, it's a great scene in the film. Um, we're thrilled to have her and, you know, she's one of the big cannabis advocates. So we felt like if we were going to do this story, you know, we needed to do everything we could to try to encourage women of her caliber to be in the film and also keep having that conversation. It is a feather in your cap. Well, thank you. Yeah. And so just two more questions before you let you, you continue on your whirlwind tour. Um, what advice would you want to give to other women who wanted to make films like this or films of any kind? Well, my advice to women, no matter what you're interested in doing, is don't wait for permission. You know, a lot of times I, I think women wait to get invited to do something. They want to make sure it's okay before they start. And... If you have an idea, just just start. You know, whether it's a film, whether it's a business, you know, there's a s small, easy, cheap way for you to start and test your idea. You know, if you want to make a film, grab your phone. Like, there are films and film festivals that have film been filmed entirely on cell phones. So there's a way for you to do it and just test it out and see if it works. Um, if you want to open a business, you know, Talk to a couple people, do a prototype, get some feedback, um, and you're going to learn a lot as you go just in terms of your audience, um, your marketing, your branding, um, funding opportunities, revenue streams, um, but you're not going to learn any of that stuff unless you start. And so the last question would be, what do you hope the most for the future of women in the cannabis industry? My biggest hope for women in the cannabis industry is the same hope I have for women everywhere. I would like to see women as respected equal partners in humankind as well as the boardroom, in our communities, as business owners, everywhere. So if we are 50% of the population, let's have 50% of the leadership stake. The other half of the sky. Exactly, exactly. and. In that, when we get more female leadership, we're going to see that the way we think about abundance and scarcity is going to change. You know, we've got this idea right now that, ooh, if, I, if we're going to make things equal for other people, I have to give something up. You know, there's that saying that for people of privilege, equality feels like oppression, Right? They have to lose something. They've been winning in this rigged system and they have to lose something to make it fair for everybody else. And I don't think that's entirely true because what we're doing at that point is saying there's one big pie and everybody gets a certain percentage of it. And what we're seeing everywhere is it's not just one pie. You can have as much pie as you want. You can have your own pie. You can make your own pie and give it to the people who love your type of pie. And they will tell all of their friends about your type of pie. And that doesn't hurt anybody else's flavor. Right? So we see this differentiation in 
all kinds of other media. You know, you see it in film, you see it in magazines, you see it in websites, you see it in all this other stuff. So we can see it in business. We can see it in our community. So we don't have to give anything up necessarily to empower other people to make sure that we have an equal playing field. So everybody eat as much pie as you want. Excellent. Thank you. Uh, and thank you so much for coming in to join us. We'll put links to all of your work in the episode notes. And there, if anyone out there, there's great swag on there, especially the buttons. Uh, and the design on the t-shirts is really excellent. And so anyone, please go see the film, support the film. And uh, thank you so much, Wendy, thank for your you. time. Yeah, we try to be really easy to find. And I encourage everybody to join us on social media. We're at Mary Jane's Film on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and maryjanesfilm.com. Thank you so much. Thank you. Greener Grass is a Bluebird Botanicals podcast. Their CBD oil supports a healthy body and a strong endocannabinoid system. They've got friendly customer service who can answer any of your questions, and the number is right there at the top of their webpage. But, per the FDA, they won't be able to make any medical claims for these nutritional supplements. That's also the reason you'll hear little about CBD on this show. There's no need for us to add more evidence about CBD when a simple Google search will give you more than you can read in a month of Sundays. So this show covers the cannabis world and more with editorial freedom from Bluebird Botanicals. Thanks for joining the Greener Grass Podcast. As always, our audio alchemist is Matt Payne. The Gypsy Jazz theme music comes from Brett Van Donsel. Our beautiful bird sounds are courtesy of Lang Elliott. And I'm your host, Lex Pelger, wishing you a bright green day. <laughs>